here we are at the last evening of this retreat. And we can contemplate or notice uh, how that perception impacts the heart. Might be a yippee, (laughs) I'm out of here. Or maybe uh, apprehension. I'm sure we all have different responses to that perception. Can we notice the perception as a perception, as a very ephemeral thought? And yet sometimes such an ephemeral thought uh, seems to be so solid when it's perhaps linked to the arising of dread as we reflect on uh, maybe a memory of a difficult or an expectation of a difficult circumstance that we're heading back into. We think we, sometimes we think that we're moving through the retreat, moving through life, And yet, from a contemplative point of view, from our Dhamma eye that we've been cultivating together, perhaps it'd be more true to say the retreat moves through us. The experience of the beginning of the retreat manifested with all the feelings and perceptions and anticipations and lingering memories of where we come from and, and then dissolved into the innumerable experiences that we have that seemed some of which seemed so compelling in their beauty their poignancy their terror so real in their dullness or in their sense of uh, failure, all the different ones we've had, which, where do they go? And, and now, are we moving through the last day? Or has, has the last day, are the impressions that crystallize within the heart, manifest within the heart, and then shift, transform. So, so now, what is, what is manifesting? With our perception of the meditation hall and the evening talk, in our body the way it is, and, and perhaps this perception of ending or moving into something.
I encourage us to, to savor, savor this time. As we've uh, reflected, different of us, on this uh, uh, retreat, the beginnings and endings are a rich time, a rich time for having insight about ourselves, about our patterns, about our tendencies. In the Buddhist teachings, the, the reflection on the dying away is fundamentally important. And that, uh, in a sense, without really fully feeling, fully experiencing the dying, the fading, then we're, we're not really alive. This, uh, there's a paradox in here. One of the Buddha's famous uh, sayings is mindfulness, as we've been enunciating it, rather than just mindfulness, which might give a sense of something up in the brain, but mindfulness, heartfulness, said the Buddha, is the path to the deathless. Heartfulness, when we're fully in touch with a moment, with a sight, with a sound. This leads us to a place of undying, place that is deathless. Heedlessness, as the saying went, as the Buddha continued to speak, is the path to death. The mindful never die. But the heedless are as if dead already. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path. Heedlessness is not really being awake to the suchness of our experience not really being here. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. And when we're, when we're not really in, in, in touch with this fluid nature of things, then we, we can easily at a certain point lays over and, and lurch to the next, what Tanisra was speaking about last night, as we scan our environment to the next attractive or next pleasing or next compelling perception or experience or thought. And we cannot really be in touch with the nature of things. And we might uh, feel like we're alive. We might feel, maybe have a good heartbeat maybe even be able to accomplish a lot of things. But what, what would the Buddha mean as if dead already? We take things for granted. We, 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 assume, we assume things about our experience, about life, that aren't really so. 
And that when we are heedless, there's this ancient tendency that uh, Tanisra was speaking about last night as she reflected on the ennobling truths, these, these contemplations that the Buddha offered as gateways to our, our nature. That there uh, is an ancient uh, tendency to, to make assumptions, to claim. To claim as, as mine, to own, to identify with, uh, with a feeling, to identify with our body, to identify with our circumstances. And in doing this, in this seemingly harmless assumption, which is very natural, I mean, after all, our language is full of it. We talk about me, we talk about you, we talk about my life, your life, my body, my health, my success, my troubles. That in doing that, we, um, we guarantee a, a process called birth and death. We guarantee a a shock when we when we lean on something that we assume to be solid and then it it crumbles and we fall we wonder what happened classical things which we lean on are, are say what the buddha called the worldly winds things that we all experience in our life, the experience of praise, when we've all experienced moments of uh, being appreciated, being honored. Someone, someone uh, verifies uh, something in us. It's a lovely feeling when someone uh, backs up, encourages, authenticates, rejoices in, say, an insight. Yes, that was a good insight. <laughs> Let me tell you, I've seen a lot. That's a real insight you got there. <laughs> and you think, <sighs> 14 retreats and I've finally had an insight. I knew someone similar to that. <laughs> you know, and that feeling of, yes, finally. I put in some hours on the mat. But, you know, and, but, you know that's, you know, so one's kind of settling onto it. <laughs> we had a breakthrough. It was, uh, I probably should write the date down, September. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, if Eugene notices, and maybe I'll get invited to give a talk sometime, might be nice to talk about when, you know, the breakthrough happened. <laughs> and so, you know, there's, and it's fair enough. I mean, I'm laughing a bit, but it's a lovely feeling, an authentic insight into something. But to notice how, how one then settles on it, builds a house on it. The Buddha called it upadana. We actually climb onto it. Upadana means to, to one translation is climb up onto like a like a raft. You know, this is got a shaky sea here, but this is something that's solid. <laughs> Making some progress. Inside. 
and then we talk to somebody else, or, you know, we leave the retreat, and, uh, you know, it'd be nice if I've had an insight was sort of beaming out of us and emanating out of us, but (laughs) we might go home and have somebody, you know, basically say, sure is a lot to do around here. Yeah. Oh, by the way, how was your retreat? Well, uh, you might say something, and, and maybe there's a snort or a glance, or a, you know, who knows? Maybe there's a, you know, some of us might have time to sit around. <laughs> you know, we just have a world imploding in these five days. You know, never mind, I'm, I'm glad, honey, you've had some peace. <laughs> that's real nice (laughs) and then you know you you notice I mean one feels like you know you can go into battle mode and talk about the Buddha or or one can you know but it feels like something shaky happening here then one starts thinking God the world is imploding and and there's a, there's a there's a there's a shaky feeling, and then there's a there's a, another wind blowing kind of criticism sense of God. There is a lot to do, and gee, what, what have I been doing? And 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 one can um, you know phone someone back up. You sure about that insight? <laughs> or just get a sense of how fragile these situations are. Praise and its opposite, uh, blame criticism or in the middle which sometimes can even be more difficult sometimes when there's just not even noticing <laughs> just you know just kind of like you're invisible fame when, when, when one is promoted or dishonor when you're we're also singled out but you're singled out in, in a way that that's feels uh, in a more public way shamed success, failure. You know, when we don't recognize it, just like this moon, this amazing crescent that we're, we're noticing out there, you know, how it's, it's in a flow of, of, of waxing and waning. You know, similarly, these experiences of, of praise and being ignored and blaming and the sense of succeeding and failing, honor and dishonor, that which is pleasing, or what's called happiness, or suffering. When we don't really comprehend that these, the nature of them is is fluid, is flowing, is waxing, is waning. They're called the worldly winds, the winds of the world of conditions. We don't really understand that. We upadana, we climb up onto, and bawa, we identify, and jati, we become it. There's a sense of me. That's, that's the birth the Buddha's talking about. I worked for years. I saw, first saw a picture on a wall when I was a little kid of some wrestlers. Wall of our high school. And I was tiny, and they were these big, strong guys. And I was told on the wall, those guys are national champions. I said, wow. 
wonder if I ever could do something like that. And uh, my first Dhamma teacher, he didn't call himself a Dhamma teacher, when I finally had a wrestling coach, this huge, rough guy, his name was Major Worship. My first teaching on karma. <laughs> Whatsoever thou soweth, you knucklehead, <laughs> that ye shall ye also reap. Then he'd usually kick you at that point. But, you know, uh, I'm grateful at the encouragement to go for things, to try, to the idea that you could do it, and I, you know, and there was a lot of virtue in, in, in practicing and training and, and at home for hours and push-ups and climbing ropes and running and studying. And, uh, you know, I, I got to a point where, where I, I did win that tournament. And I remember when they, up in Pennsylvania, coming from Tennessee, our team went up to Pennsylvania and held my hand up and, you know, I made it. And the referee held my hand up. That was a lovely moment. But then, you know, do you go around the rest of your life with your hand up? Now, if you have a mom like mine who's amazing, she'll have everything you've ever accomplished in a scrapbook, you know, so you can kind of, kind of go and kind of remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, when the, the book closes, well, where did it go? And it's true of the successes. It's true of the failures. But when we are born in those moments, when that is me, and then we, we stand on it, then, then we ensure, when the Buddha says we're as if dead already, we guarantee that death happens. Because in establishing, identifying, building one's house on something, then one is subject to what you've placed your trust in. And when that crumbles, as it inevitably does, this is the nature of the conditioned world and there is falling and lurching. The mindful never die is encouraging us to draw attention to this birth and death, to this changing nature. And in understanding that, and in recognizing that, and in opening to the pain of it, the excitement of it, the disappointment of it, the danger of it. There's a, a whole another dimension of our being that still includes this stuff, but a whole dimension that we've uh, we haven't given so much attention to, perhaps in our growing up. I feel very, very uh, grateful that we've had this blessing to be able to be here. And, uh, you know, for me, though, I've 
experienced uh, lots of fatigue and things like that. It's been very, uh, which is just something in my system from time to time. It's been very blessed to have the chance to to be together with uh, Eugene and Tanisara and with you all, encouraging this activity of heartfulness, mindfulness, for the sake of touching into that timeless quality which never dies, for the sake of illuminating with courage, with tenderness, with with, uh, resolution, the various aspects of our life that have been heedless, that really haven't, we've just made assumptions there. We haven't really touched into them with presence of heart. And I, I feel grateful for one on this evening, I'd like to acknowledge that our good fortune, that we, we one, have a, a body-mind that's even able to come here. That's a blessing. That there's even an interest. There's a lot of other activities going on this evening in other places that are, that are, some of which are terrifying, some of which are really poignant, some of which are struggling, some of which are celebratory. But to have the opportunity to do what we, we're doing is, is a real blessing to have encountered the Buddhist teachings, to even have something spark in us so that we sense there's something there to look into. To, to actually be interested in this experience of taking birth and losing it and disappointment and, and what we've called dukkha, being apart from the perfect, apart from ease, experiencing this and somehow wanting to understand it, being, being intrigued and somehow knowing that there must be, somehow it resonates with us, intrigued by this notion of awakening, by this... I didn't know what it meant, but just hearing the word did something to me when I first heard it. This possibility of freedom or possibility of a real ease, the possibility of being able to connect and respond wisely, compassionately. So we, we have a blessing. A blessing. Uh, that we're able to do this, and, and uh, not to deny all the trials and tribulations that we all face, but uh, to also acknowledge what has helped us get here, the sacrifices that have helped us be able to be here. And so this evening I do, I do think of, uh, though my wrestling coach didn't have the final answer, he did, he, I, I'm grateful to him for and something that is in this culture, it, it can be problematic, but something in this culture was, go for it. If you really work hard, you can do amazing things. There's a powerful spiritual perfection in there, this, this willingness to engage, to stay with, to be open to a possibility, rather than just a fatalistic, oh, well, Nothing probably will ever happen. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, there's some problems with, with drive, if that's what, all we know, and competitiveness, and wanting to win, and, and feeling, always being critical. There's problems, but there's also a blessing there. And I also want to like to acknowledge, I'm grateful to have uh, 
grown up in the country and be in places where I'm, I'm allowed to contemplate the Dhamma. That's also a blessing. Very grateful for our teachers. And, 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 and just to continue this, this theme of teachers and to continue some of the contemplations of uh, Tanisha last night, I would like to uh, recite one of my favorite passages from the Buddha. And it was also this group of young students that uh, had heard about this awakened one in uh, the same group that Tanisha quoted from last night. And uh, they had, had, had gone with all sorts of reverence to, to meet this being, the Buddha. And one of the students' name was Kappa. And this is his question. Sir, he said to the Buddha, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being. And death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. Tell me where there is solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. The rush of the river of this birth and death, this climbing on things and then having them collapse. Death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. Where is there solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain? Kappa, said the Master. This is the Buddha. For the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of birth and death, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness a place of non-possession, of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana. There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death. They cannot fall into his power. There is an island, I'm recapping, a place you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession, non-attachment. The end of birth and death, and this is why I call it Nibbana. We were reflecting last night how when we turn to this sense of anguish, something being wrong, something not being quite right, whether it's a tremendous pain that we're struggling with, or whether it's a hard-to-name anxiety or dis-ease, not quite being able to settle anywhere, when we open to that, start to get a sense of it 
being sustained by this. What Tanisura called last night, power of tanha, power of craving, owning, claiming. What I described early on in this talk, the desire to bhava tanha, the desire to become successful, at ease, to, to become that and, and have that and, and, and own that. And when we actually start to, to recognize that, remember that the Buddha encouraged that when we see this, this thing that claims, he encouraged us to let it be. In letting this be. For the sake of realizing Nibbana, the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. But can we just tell ourselves, oh, let go, let go? That's another kind of desire. Let go, let go. Rather than forcing ourselves to let go, the path the Buddha encouraged is, is when we recognize, when there is in our own being a recognition that actually, ultimately, there isn't anything to grasp then it's not a question of letting go. It's a question of of recognizing we've been demanding something in places where it isn't. So in our mindfulness, we, we start to contemplate what is passing through our heart, the aspects of our experience. When we've uh, contemplate the breath, what do we notice? The breathing. We notice that it's becoming otherwise every instant. It's a noun. It sounds like my breath. Breath's going pretty good. Mine. But when we actually go to it, it's becoming otherwise every instant. Vibration, swelling, Pausing, exhalation. Pausing, inhalation. As we go closer to it, we realize that actually it's not even a thing that goes in and out, that there's currents of energy, vitality. In fact, anywhere we Notice in our body, our hands are pulsing, temperature, shifting, various sensations in various parts of the body, some more pleasing, some a little bit painful, some more neutral. That's the form of our body. If we look outside to the forms around us, the weather, remember the hot, hot days. Notice this morning the kind of clouds, days when there was no wind, there's been a lot of breeze and coolness today, the moon changing, seasons changing. If we really put our attention onto form, sound is a part of form. 
as mindfulness. Notice this sound. Well, or this talk. We might have an opinion, or it's an interesting talk, or not an interesting talk, or it's my talk, or you stole my talk. <laughs> you didn't understand my talk. Or but if we really just contact it, full of holes, sounds there that then keep dissolving. Can we really claim a sound? Or like claiming that insight? Memory does. But then the memory dissolves. Even memory shifting and changing. There was one person who came to our monastery to die, and he, he was, he had cancer, and he wanted to die in the monastery, so we helped to nurse him, and he was ready for the body to be shifting and changing, to let it come and go as it, as it was. So he's lost mobility, and had discomfort, and he was, he was quite recognizing that ultimately, no, he couldn't keep that. It was going its own way. But one thing, he had a really good memory, an incredible memory. And even though his world had reduced down, it was still a big world to him, but it reduced down, spatially speaking, to the bed and the table, and a few little things on the table. You'd go see Ray, and he would start a story, and he would start going, and he would start going, and he'd start going, you think, where is he going? But I mean, that story would go way around, way around, and come right back perfect. You know, this man's mind is clear. And then one day he got in a real panic. He said, I can't remember who came to see me this morning. He had still even taken memory, memory to be something that was his. It was lovely, though, that it was intermittent so that one could actually discuss it. Because they're right, that, you know, that's not ultimately in your control to bring a memory back. As we know, sometimes we can't even remember where we put our keys. How many times do I have to ask Tanisra? <laughs> <laughs> but for Ray, that was, there's st- and then it was important for him to be able to work on acknowledging, ah, this is coming and going, coming and going. Sounds, sights, feelings, memories, moments of knowing, thoughts, impermanent. Very important part of Buddhist practice is reflecting on their impermanence. Once we actually recognize, really taste, that something's impermanent, then it's, there's a recognition of it as dukkha, not as ultimately dukkha, but as not able to be claimed. Or another way of putting it is, if we... Well, it just keeps coming back, it sounds crazy, but Ajahn Chah used to say, it's like going up to a chicken and saying, why aren't you a duck? <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know. You know, you know, you know, what does a chicken say? 
why aren't you a duck? You know, it's like Ajahn Chah said, when we expect security in that which can't offer it, that that's, it's like going up to a pine tree and wondering why it's not an incredible oak tree where the acorns. Conditions is the nature, the perfection of conditions is to become otherwise in an instant. But when we don't know that, it's dukkha. When we think it's an entity, when we think it's really me, it's really mind, it is a suchness in and of itself, then it's dukkha, because it becomes otherwise. So in really, the Buddha said, this will take us all the way home. Just this simple reflection on impermanence. When one starts to see things becoming otherwise, then there's the recognition of, of course, climbing onto something, expecting it to be solid, and having it crumble. Is dukkha. Anatta. It's not ours. That's something we add to it. So in this beautiful teaching that the Buddha gave, how do we find a place of solid ground, place of stability, place of safety. It's a place of non-possession. Not a question of trying to make ourselves let go. That's the kind of thing we're trying to do in our head. But if one touches with our experience, with our body, with our awareness, this impermanent nature, and start to recognize in this moment the flow of, of impressions cascading through awareness. The, the ephemeral flickerings of, of sound and sight impressions and moods that we might have mixed in with it, opinions that we might be having now. That when one gets a sense for that flow, that ever-changing suchness of conditions, then, then the idea that one could really claim it is about as, as crazy as going up to, to a river and thinking that, that we can grasp it. This year we were had the privilege of taking uh, uh, the abbot of Chithurst, Ajahn Sajito, and another senior monk from Switzerland, Venerable Akinchino, Ajahn Akinchino, around Mount Kailash. And it was an arduous uh, pilgrimage, but a wonderful pilgrimage. And, and near the, uh, on the last day, when we were uh, getting near the end of the complete circumambulation, we crossed a, a, a flowing stream from, from the ice-capped uh, Kailash, from the glacier, the melting glacier. It, it, we crossed over, and it, this water was, was milky-colored and, and, and vibrant, full of electricity. And uh, Tanisha and I uh, got some First, we, as we just looked at it, rippling, changing, moving, splashing, as, as one approaches that, it, 
can claim it. One can be can be in awe. One can touch it. Maybe swim in it. But there's such a recognition. You don't know how really have to tell yourself. It's it's obvious. It's obvious. Birth and death, changing every instant. The Buddha taught there is an unconditioned. There is that which is undying. There is that which is unoriginated. If there wasn't this undying quality, the Buddha taught, then there would be no escape from from birth and death. But because there is something which is such, which is undying, this solid ground of truth, which the Buddha spoke about, then there is, there is an escape from birth and death. The Buddha taught that actually all things merge in this place, that in actuality this place of truth is where all things come together. Language, though, makes it appear that things are so separate. Because language is all about me giving a talk, you listening to the talk, me going back home. How many men, how many women, old, young, this race, that background, this political leaning, language discriminates. There seem to be all these things. Where, though, is the place where all things come together. One way I like to, to, to contemplate it is, is, is with the looking uh, on the, uh, around us at the natural world. We can look at the different kinds of trees, the pine trees, the gum trees, the oak trees. You can talk about where we live, the, the pine trees are beautiful, but they're taking over and, and, and harming the soil. So you can have an opinion about them, but other people say, oh, well, they're, they're good money makers. And, uh, and then the gum trees drink a lot of water, but then they offer wood, but then they're harming the soil. And you can compare different kinds of trees, and then we're trying to preserve indigenous trees, things that are fire resistant and also protect the soil and, and help allow water to, to run off to, so that the rest of Africa can have something to drink. So you can discriminate these different trees, but where do they merge? Where do trees come together? One way we think of them as coming together is in the ground, in the earth. When their roots go into the ground, you, you can't distinguish them between the oak tree and the ohot indigenous tree or the gum tree. When one only looks at the surface, one misses the fact of this web, of this place where things come together. Consciousness, when it loses our home, focuses on on praise, on on blame, on on, on something pleasing, on on my health, on my loved one. And and it it seems separate from me. and, And we where, where could that merge? Where is the ground of all this apparent separation? When a sound 
dissolves, where does it dissolve back into? Isn't there a presence, a silence that's bright? Each word, each thought. Practicing having our thoughts, practicing thinking ordinary thoughts so that we get a sense for this this faculty that we so easily get fooled by and only see life through these labels of separation, me, you, good, bad. With the same care that we learn to feel our breath, with the same care we, we, we learn to contact seeing and hearing and establishing ourselves in body. When we, when we get a little established, it's very, very, very important in giving that same care to experiencing a thought come and go. First, maybe just my name. My name is Kitty Sorrow. Hear that thought appear like it's... and then dissolve. Similar to a wave. You can identify separate waves, but the waves, the big wave and the little wave, are rooted in the depths, the immeasurability. Or like a tree is visible, but when it falls, it goes back into the earth. A thought is manifest, and then it dissolves back into what? What remains? Conscious, present. Just practicing, allowing ourselves to get a sense for that place of non-possession, letting things be born and die. A thought come and go. I'm really doing well. Comes and goes. You know, I don't think I quite have it. Comes and goes. Practice thinking like this. I finally got it. I've got to tell somebody. I see. Comes and goes. I'll never ever get enlightened. I'm sure my karma is too bad. Comes and goes. If it wasn't for this blasted knee. (laughs) And you know who did it. That's so-and-so. Comes and goes. Really practice listening, not thinking to get somewhere, but thinking to get a sense for the bubble-like nature. The bubble-like nature. And get a sense for, rather than trying to climb on to, noticing what happens when we climb on to, yes, I got it. What kind of house can you build on those kind of thoughts? And yet we do. When someone, they love us and then they don't love us, They do love us, and and our feelings go this way and that way, and these are important, and we work with them. But when Ajahn Chah encouraged me on the first meeting, if you understand the breath, you'll understand everything. The first disciple that had real insight into the Dhamma had just this insight that everything arises ceases. The Buddha's first disciple that tasted Nibbana, 
And when Ajahn Chah was talking about understanding the breath, just this much, an in-breath there and then it's gone. A thought's there and then it's gone. A feeling's there and then it shifts. When one recognizes that, then we can touch it, be in full contact, immersed in it, but not expecting one can rest. This resting, can we rest in our suchness? Can we rest in this ground? Let it support us. But when we're used to being supported by leaning on these different conditions, then it's, it can be frightening to start to let go. Near the end of my wrestling career, when I had four screws put in my shoulder and had an operation and I was in bed, sitting up in the hospital, and I I was exhausted. I I had this railing. I wanted to go back, and I wanted to rest, and I knew the bed was back there, but is it? I mean, it's a long way. Will it catch me, and will it hurt? At some point, I let go. And then once falls and then is held. Really practice with an out-breath, letting go of trying to chase and allowing conditions to be. As the Buddha says, all conditioned dhammas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows like dewdrops in a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. Lightning flash. Appreciating the lightning, can you chase it? Can you grab it? If one can keep practicing resting, letting go, being held in that which is. In this place of letting go, we sense our depth, our vastness, that place where all things melt. We can let go and we can also embrace. We can notice each other, notice our body. We can feel one, open to, with what's flickering and changing. As we let go, we realize the stillness, the depths where we all merge. This letting go, I am nothing, is the wisdom of the heart. Embracing I am everything, the compassion of the heart. It's manifested, it's surface in the depth. You can't really say there are two. So we have moments, moments of understanding. And then there's clinging. And then with the care and the patience that we've been talking about, we allow that in consciousness and start to see it too in its true nature. I 
I'd like to finish with a quote that reminds us of where we're all going. It's from the teacher that uh, taught us the great compassion mantra, Master Hua, who died some, I don't know, 10 years ago. But he, he spoke of the beauty to me that, uh, that we're little by little waking up to as we continue this practice. He said, all living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of empty space is my university. My name is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy, and giving are my function. As little by little we allow our thoughts to keep being seen as they are, designations that keep bubble back into a vastness. Then there's a possibility of really living beings being our family, this very magnificent, mysterious universe being our form, our body. All of empty space is being a place where we can learn rather than really trying to say who we are, we, we recognize there's something unsayable, something empty and formless at our core. And we can trust that in contact something will resonate from us. Kindness, compassion, joy, and giving is our function. Yes, there's a, a lot of work to do. But it's wonderful to remember that all this potential is in this one moment. And with our Dhamma friends, and with our teacher, teachers, and with in company like this, I really do deeply sense this is a, a reality that we're all blossoming into. Because our true nature is. And everything arises and dissolves into it. Thank you for these, your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.